This is The Guardian. By this time next year, there's a real possibility that we'll have a new Prime Minister. This guy. Well, I'm a responsible Labour, uh, you know, politician, and I want a responsible Labour government. There ought to be excitement and optimism in the air. God knows we could do with some of that stuff. But when it comes to Labour, many of us aren't really feeling it. We are on the side of economic growth. Will you just let me please get on with it? Thank you very much. Are Starmer sceptics like me missing something? I'm John Harris and you're listening to Politics Week in the UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian columnist Polly Toynbee and The Guardian's political reporter Alita Adu. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi. Thanks for joining us in person. Right, let's talk about the Labour Party. I don't think we can start a conversation about Labour without acknowledging the success the party has obviously had under Keir Starmer. To get to 18 points ahead, even more of the Conservatives following such a devastating defeat in 2019 clearly should not be underestimated. But at the same time, I suppose I can't help but feel there's something lacking. No real sense of excitement or opportunity, partly because Keir Starmer and his people keep telling us they're not going to do much as and when they first take power, but also because they've got no clear story or vision at this point about the country and where they want to take it. And those things, I suppose, are all the more frustrating because the UK has so clearly reached the limits of the social and economic model we've had since the 1980s. What we could all do with, particularly after the pandemic and Brexit and everything else, is some hope and a bit of inspiring leadership. This is the subject of a conversation I keep having with people, like Judy, who we met in Uxbridge. Do you get any sense of that from Keir Starmer? That he's got a story about the future? Probably not. <laughs> I think you just need, I think it's like any leader, isn't it? You need a good personality that people can believe in and want to follow and, um, and understand that this is what we can do. Yeah. You know, it, it is. I mean, I just can't, I try and listen to the news, but I feel too, oof, you know, it's too negative. It's too, you know, you want yeah, some so positivity. And there's, and there's no one who you see in that environment from any party or anywhere where you think, okay, yeah, I could follow that person. That person's got it. Is there anybody? Is there anyone? I can't think of anyone. Alita, do you, recognize that sort of voice and that sort of feeling i do and i recognize it when i speak to voters people on the streets i recognize that you know a week before the uxbridge by-election where i was um from labor supporters and also conservative voters that are feeling quite pissed off and annoyed with how the country's been run by their own party desperate to vote for somebody else but they're kind of not inspired enough to make that move and they blame that largely on Keir Starmer's personality. It stands politics from what I've heard. And then we've got MPs in the PLP. You know, there's a split between those who are kind of like, look, we've had years and years of personality politics. We've had years and years of people promising these like big visions. For once, we've got somebody that feels very serious. It seems as though he's got some kind of plan. And then we've got the other half. <laughs> We're like, really? What kind of plan? Yeah, yeah. He's dumped half of his policies. You know, I thought I knew the guy. You know, he campaigns on a very left-wing policy platform. He's not the same person. What is going on? And there's some sort of continuity, isn't there, between the voices of those Labour MPs and members of the public who don't really know who he is and what he's about. 
and feel that there's something lacking in that department. You can sort of draw a line between the two. I think there's quite a remarkable amount of policy out there that hasn't really landed yet. I mean, when you think that they are going to spend $28 a year on their green economic plan, all right, they're going to take a couple of years to get up to that. You can't get spades in the ground overnight to build new factories and all the rest of it. That is bigger. That is more per capita than Joe Biden has put into his great big investment plan. That's that true. Is but a the, massive but, investment. But this question about feeling that the leader of the Labour Party specifically is giving people at least some measure of hope and identifiably stands for a different sort of country. When I speak to people, the first thing usually that happens is there's a sort of awkward pause and they pull a face. And these are even people who are going to vote Labour, right? And I don't think one shouldn't sort of gloss over this because I don't think it was like everybody was a mad keen Tony Blair fan, but I don't suppose there was nearly that level of sort of borderline indifference towards him at a comparable point in the political cycle in the 90s. I don't remember people bouncing around saying, I love that Tony Blair. I think I there's was. always... I was. I was very keen I for was. him to win. I can think of how many people, particularly Labourish people, like to get their disillusioning quick first, <laughs> early. And uh, they're busy doing that now. I mean, what's remarkable is that two years ago, if you'd said Keith Starmer was going to be 20 points ahead, you'd be astonished. But then you wonder why they're so cautious, why they're so careful, why aren't they more confident? Well, one reason is uh, Neil Kinnock was 20 points ahead in 1990. And then what happened in 1992? You know, nothing feels secure. We live in much more volatile times now. I I think it's not a pose. I think the Labour people are genuinely terrified. And when they talk about carrying the Ming vase across the slippery floor, that's how they feel. Do you pick that up, Alita, that fear, nervousness? There's all kinds of fear within the PLP and around his top team, you could say. There is the fear that, I mean, amongst his top team, that there are already people, you know, making movements and deciding who the next leader could be if he were to lose the next election. There are people already These are the streetingites, very I'm told. Small. Yeah, <laughs> that's not r- just the streetingites. Really? Like, you'd be very surprised. Who else is in the frame to be the leader of the Star? <laughs> Rachel. Wow. <laughs> Rachel Reeves. Rachel I think is, we're yeah. all collapse, go home, give up and despair. If Labour can't win this election, after after Boris Johnson, after the Brexit calamity, after Liz Truss, if after all of that, if after what's happened to people's mortgages, to the cost of living, to 17% more on their food bills, well, give up and go home. I agree, but that's my question, therefore, about why people seem so indifferent and they pull all these grimaces when I mention his name, precisely because it should be so clear, and it's not. But I also wonder whether that fear that you talked about and Alita agreed with ends up being paralysing that perhaps the reason we're not getting quite the level of ambition and excitement from Labour politics is precisely because too many of them are terrified, needlessly, actually. And then you've got, you know, the other half of people, let's say, who are quietly confident and feel as though they're actually almost pretending to be a bit too nervous. It's like, you know, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. We don't want to show that we are feeling extremely comfortable here and these poll leads are, you know, demonstrating exactly how confident we feel but we don't want to get ahead of ourselves and start unveiling all kinds of policies and ideas now that A, maybe the Tories might capitalise on and just maybe try and steal and adapt ahead of the election, or maybe that they'll try and find holes in 
before even they launch their next manifesto. They're kind of like, why reveal all your cards now? That's right. There is a lot to come. I mean, we've got 18 months probably because he'll probably mm. hang on to the bitter end because they always do, hoping something will turn up. And a lot of Labour policy will come out quite near the election and a lot of it will be quite surprising. I think that uh, Rachel Reeves has quite a lot of her sleeves. A lot of it, of course, won't happen until after the election. If Labour wins, I mean, it's all very well for Labour to say, well, we're not going to put up income tax. But there's a huge amount of money she has up her sleeve from all of the uh, loopholes to be cut off. I think she'll be quite a radical chancellor. They won't actually break their promises. But within those promises, a lot of leeway. For instance, saying we won't borrow any money except to invest. But invest in what? Because investing in people can be a capital investment too. There's plenty of leeway there. So is that is that an argument that behind the scenes there are the first stirrings of a coherent plan and there are things that they will do in power that we just don't know about yet? Is that That's the argument on that I score? think so. I think there's a lot going on. I mean, what else do they do, all these shadow ministers who don't have actual departments, but make plans, but the problem work out with that what is they if, can do? If you're going to fundamentally change a country, you need permission to do it. You need momentum behind you. You need to put together a coalition of support, right? And the danger with what you just said is I begin to sense the, pol- the politics of stealth, right? And the politics of stealth have their place. But the problem with it is if you're not upfront about what you're doing, A, there's not much momentum behind it, and B, it doesn't embed itself, and it becomes very easy to sweep away when the other lot get in. And that's why that, I think... Is if that's the case, why I don't like it. I want to tell me what you're going to do. It's not very stealthy to say you're going to spend more than Joe Biden. And everybody goes, when you put something out, well, within two years, it'll take you two years. I thought they said by the end of the parliament. No, they said by the midway. They said within two years. It would take two years. You try spending 28 billion on something, on useful things. So I think we are going to get, uh, you know, I think there is a way in which Labour people always say, oh, yeah, thanks. They pocket it and move on. Okay, to let me try another one. Let what, me try another one. Let me try another one on you. What about <laughs> employment? What about employment? What about pay, fair pay agreements across every sector? That will raise pay enormously in lots of sectors. That will be very, very radical. You think that's what their if, version of the, of the minimum wage on the absolutely, new Labour? Absolutely. Absolutely. And as, yes. Potentially as significant. Um, it might more. It'll be above the minimum okay, wage I, for I, lots I, of sectors. I will take that one on the chin and accept that that's a, that's what a about a trade helpful. union visit to every single workplace to recruit will hugely increase the number and the power of trade unions very important okay we're talking a lot about policy right and of course policy is hugely important but elections to my mind are lost and won very often when it comes to stories and narratives right and that's not necessarily about big commitments it's about telling us where the country's been where it is now and where it's going and all successful politicians i think are master storytellers and i miss that as far as the labor party right now is concerned i don't think that's a left right point particularly in the sense that tony blair who incidentally i said i was a great fan of his in 95 96 i'd gone off him you know in time by sort of 99 2000 but Nonetheless, he was brilliant at storytelling. And at a comparable point in the political cycle in 95, 96, 97, he was really able to frame the condition of the country in a very moving way, amazingly stirring stuff about the kind of country he wanted to create. I've only heard Starmer do that once, and that's a lot of what I miss. 
I think he's I think he's a cold fish and I don't think I think we need something better than that. I like the speech he made at party conference a couple of years when he talked about what every primary school should have the experience 10 experiences that every primary school should have what was so shocking is that so many of them no longer do you know should go to the sea should go to london should go you know things that are just everybody takes for granted but do you accept that we could do with a little bit more of stirring storytelling of course we always want more we always want more uh, and would we like him to be a bit sparkier yes but the stuff about personality well no no i'm talking i'm talking know. about something very specific here he's told his personal story over and over again to the point where we all know quite a bit about his background his family you know, how he strove from like his working class beginnings to rise up to the top. I mean, he became this really successful lawyer. A lot of people take the piss about it on social media. Like, we get it, we get your story. But I mean, when it comes down to it, there are a lot of people from working class communities that still really uh, sort of recognise that and sort of take some yeah, form of inspiration asset, right? from that. But it's so still we can't not quite really a story. Like... It's not quite a story about the country, though, is it? No, but and that's where the whole idea. I think it was around New Year where he was talking about ending, you know, the, the use of sticking plaster politics, and that became a big thing. We're going to make Britain better. We're going to dream bigger because it's time for us to actually just fix the country and reform. We're not just going to spend our way through things. We're going to actually reform things. And it felt like there was a slight turning point with his five missions, as n- even though I think there's been a lot of sort of drama around what was included within those five missions. Can we just remind them. ourselves of what the five missions are? Well, one of them is opportunity, which covers a lot of things. It's, you know, okay, it's but just, early but, but, years. But don't dig in. Don't crucial. just tell me what the five are. Remind me what the five are. So there's Britain as a clean energy superpower. That's, that's one. That's a really important one. The opportunity the one is the breaking policy. of the so-called class ceiling. Yep. Okay, do you... Number Absolutely three, crucial. Well, violence against women and girls ending the har- halving, halving, halving. I think yeah. growth, okay. growth, uh, growth to be highest, highest growth in, in the G seven. Yeah, that's the one that's a bit absurd. Well, that's what twenty eight billion gets. They're you. quite technocratic, right? There's not a moral kind of aspect about what kind of country Green he wants to and create. Opportunity. I'd say those are the two yeah, big, big moral issues of our time. But, well, what about poverty and inequality? That's what opportunity is about. It's about Come that on, too. Polly. You've spent years writing columns saying that you don't get equality of opportunity without equality of outcome. Oh, that's it true. Doesn't... That's what he thinks too. He he uses the word equality, which Blair never, okay. ever used. That's significant. Ever. Let's talk about his inner circle, the people who he is working with very closely on these messages or the lack of them. We hear a lot of names thrown around. Morgan McSweeney, Deborah Mattinson, and then sort of New Labour old-timers who we're told are quite influential in the inner circle of Keir Starmer, Peter Mandelson, Tony Blair himself. Who's Tony sort Blair of himself, yes. who's sort of running the show? I mean, I think it'd be interesting to start with Deborah Mattinson being one of the most powerful women within his inner circle. Something that many MPs are quite frustrated about. They fear that the fact that there aren't many women or ethnic minorities that might play a part in the fact that he might not be hitting these visions that are really connecting with people. She's a pollster by trade and she worked for Gordon Brown. Brown. Um, And I think there was a long time where Labour were really insistent on trying to make sure they were connecting with the red wall and the blue wall and she was doing a lot of work with her focus groups on trying to understand 
where what sort of messaging worked best in which particular areas. Um, now, some of Starmer's front benches and even members of the shadow cabinet at one point, I think earlier this year, after the missions were launched, were quite pissed off about how the missions looked and they felt as though um, it was lacking this sort of vision and narrative because we would, she had just been focused on a specific sort of area in the north of England, relying heavily on these focus groups and not speaking to a wider variety of people. But I mean, Deborah herself is an extremely confident and capable woman. What about Morgan McSweeney? Who's he? He is, you know, he's he's very tough, very rigorous, very determined. Everybody will stay in line. That there will be no uh, policies leaking out, or let alone unofficial policies leaking out. No uh, shadow ministers who are going to push the edge. I mean, where Streeting no does it a bit, That's and, the and, 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 and Bridget yeah. Phillipson does it a bit because they are so champing at the bit to want to announce and do things things for health and for education and they get reined in all the time and they get a bit frustrated I think and he's there to crack the whip and to make sure that uh, a strategy stays in line policy mm. stays in line yeah. for the moment yeah. I mean as you say because wait you know 18 months you're already bored with all these <laughs> radical policies already we I'm put not them bored. all out you'll be really bored in I'm 18 bored. months time you're going oh yeah yeah 28 billion. oh yeah yeah there is a kind of way in which uh, you know we on the labor side always want more. Nothing is enough ever. We will always be disappointed. And so if you give it all now, uh, then what is there left? Well, I'm, not making the, I'm not making the argument for that. I'm making the argument for uh, storytelling and narrative and, and a greater sense of hope and optimism because I think everybody could do with it. And in that sense, I think Starmer some is... Some passion is, maybe as and well. And some passion perhaps. Yeah. I think no, Ed Miliband's got a lot of that. I think that the green... I think the green... He's not the leader. No, but he's leading the very important part of the policy because the Green New Deal stuff is absolutely central to the economy. OK, on that subject, that's an interesting thing to bring up. Who does Starmer listen to and not listen to, crucially, in the shadow cabinet? Rachel. So Rachel, he does listen to. She's influenced. They are very, very close. And she likes ideas more than him, I think. She likes well. ideas. I think she's full of ideas and I think she's reining herself in a lot. There was a suggestion that they did have some form of agreement over the inclusion of the G7 within the uh, within the five missions earlier this year. Apparently, she wasn't told, and it just kind of adds to the narrative that she does pack a lot more punch than she would show. She was very loyal, obviously. What about Angela Rayner? I think he has to listen to her. <laughs> she definitely has a voice. And um, she carries her own mandate, and she yes. represents something quite potent, right? As the as a as a clear working class voice. In the yes, show. and she was, you know, elected as deputy Labour leader. You know. The members voted for her. Um, I think they clash on a lot of issues. And actually, there had been suggestions that she'd been not silent, but possibly silenced, to quote a phrase, <laughs> because of the suggestion that maybe she was stepping out of line. I think it was around the times where they were rowing over strikes last summer and their position on how, how far they sort of stand with the unions and people that are fighting for better pay. But I think Angela has proved that she has fought a lot of wars. She still has all of her jobs intact uh, ahead of this next... Oh, she's invaluable. I mean, day after day, when the Tories do something terrible, she's out there first going punch, punch, punch in a really good way. And you need someone who will do that. Absolutely fearless. Uh, and she brings the passion that maybe... She does. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. lacks. Um, yeah, yeah. Sort of complement each other in that way. Does it worry you a bit 
Polly, that Tony Blair seems to be exerting some influence over this project. And it yes, I wish he'd go away. <laughs> this is more like it. No, I mean, I just think it's not helpful. You were always more of a, a brown person than a Blair person. Well, I was, but I was also not that anti-Blair either. I mean, I was distressed about the endless TBGB wars that went on, which were very distressing. But it does worry you a bit that, that it worries he, me a lot he's around. Either he says something very clever and you think, oh, gosh, wish the others were as clever as he was. Or he says something really stupid like he said last week when he said when he's about climate change which is really destructive and unhelpful so i think he said that we shouldn't have to worry too much about our own account it was all about china he said we only we we, we are only responsible for one percent of global warming china's responsible for 22 percent which is an entirely mendacious figure because of course we buy all our stuff from china so they do all the heating up the atmosphere it's one of those things that only works i will if you will you know it really it, it was really destructive but also very instructive about the Tony Blair state of mind. Yeah, I highly agree. I think the more he references Tony Blair and the more they're compared, the more Starmer's weakness is in his difficulty in possibly sharing a narrative or just coming across as particularly enthusiastic about things he's talking about is, is notable because Tony Blair had that charisma and that flair. He could sort of woo people in ways that I think Starmer is really struggling to within his own PLP, for example. Wow. Even so it's sort of ill-advised in two ways. That First of all, Blair out there in the country, as a figurehead, isn't nearly as popular as some of his, his people would like us to think. And then secondly, just inevitably, being in close proximity to someone who, whatever his faults, was a political wizard, doesn't put Starmer in a very flattering light. It seems to me that we've had lots of proof over the last decade that politics as usual doesn't work for people increasingly. It alienates them. We had the very close-run independence referendum in Scotland in 2014, the vote for Brexit. I would argue the arrival of Jeremy Corbyn as the Labour leader and the close 2017 election were proof of the fact that the public, or a large part of it, wasn't that keen on politics as usual. And what worries me about Starmerism is that it's a reversion to the kind of technocratic politics that all those things were a reaction to, which again is why the presence of Blair in and around Starmer rings those alarm bells. And when Starmer takes power, if he takes power, it will be in very difficult circumstances. No time really to leave a political vacuum open. And if he does that, in other words, if he comes to grief and leaves that political vacuum open, what will fill it could be terrifying. If you don't speak a language of hope, and making people's lives better, nasty people might come along and do it, right? And in that sense, I worry that the stakes are very high. Polly, you were nodding slightly. I think that's true. I think we live in dangerous times, and we're seeing it erupting all over the place. We've had our own dose of it with Brexit. In a sense, I'm hoping that Brexit has, because it's failed so badly, and even people who still don't necessarily think they voted the wrong way, but they think it's failed, it's expunged some of that populist impulse. You know, they had their go at that. They had a great outburst in voting for Brexit and saw where it got them. And I'm not sure there's an appetite for that anymore. I don't think it's as easy to stir that up as it was no, in 2016. If, if, if Starmer fails and if he doesn't eventually speak the language of hope and palpable improvements of people's lives, right, then even just as far as the Conservative Party is concerned, the alternative could be really, really horrible. Mm. And I asked uh, one of Starmer's closest allies, you could say, uh, what are they going to do if this general election turns into a really nasty culture war? Because, I mean, we're already beginning to see that now. I mean, around Easter, we were seeing Labour coming out with these attack ads in response to Swella Braverman making some horrible, like, dog whistle comments about a Pakistani man. 
And I was told that essentially Labour only wins when people believe change is possible. There is no point coming out with massive visions and big dreams if you've got, you know, disgruntled Conservatives that don't even believe that A, you could win, or B, that when you get in, you're capable of creating any sort of change because you're not that sort of authoritarian leader. So I guess we've seen Sturmer try to prove that he can be a bit brutal by ousting the likes of Jeremy Corbyn, blocking the likes of Jamie Driscoll, like going back onto internal party politics. But then when it comes to actually showcasing what their vision is, it's kind of going back to that whole poker face politics where it's like, let's just show that we can understand that maybe encourage people that they could lend us their vote for this next election. And then once we're in, that's when the big dreams start to shift and when things happen. Let me ask that question, that last question in another way. Do you think they know that the stakes are that high, right? Oh, yes. Because eventually when New Labour ran into the ground, you've got Cameron and Osborne, which was pretty horrible, right? But it's not nearly as horrible as, as the Conservative Party in government under Suella Bravman or Kemi Badenoch might be, right? Well, it doesn't look that horrible, but it was horrible. I mean, the damage, but you know the what, damage you know done what I, was so appalling. But you know what I mean. It was done with a polite face. And do you think they know that the stakes are really high? Oh, yes. I mean, I think the sense of despair it was bad enough in 92, the shock of not winning then. The shock of Labour not winning this time, I think, would be completely appalling. Or winning, I don't think... and, then, or winning and then failing. Well, I mean, they, they're also very aware of that. Imagine that first cabinet meeting when there is there is Rachel Reeve sitting there and around the table are every single minister desperate for money. You know, look at the state of, of justice, look at the state of prisons, look at the state of the NHS, look at the state of schools, you know, roofs falling in. Uh, and only, and, and only a certain amount, and I think more than they say, that they will spend more than they say, but nothing like enough to recover from 14 years of absolute depredation on all our public services. And I think they're anxiously aware of that, how not to disappoint, how not to raise expectations beforehand, promising that everything can be solved overnight when they know it can't. OK, let's pause here for a minute. When we come back, we will talk a bit about Keir Starmer and the Labour leadership and its relations with the media including us. The World Cup is here, and can you hear that? That's the sound of you missing out. Drop everything you're doing, unless you're driving, and tune into the Guardian Women's Football Weekly podcast, because with even more teams and more living legends than ever before, this is one hell of a World Cup. To keep up with all the action, we'll be doing three episodes a week for the entirety of the tournament, you lucky things. We'll have the usual guests and lots of new voices. Join us, Suzanne Rack and Faker Others, and listen to the Guardian Women's Football Weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. There is an interesting undercurrent that's run under a great deal of what we were talking about in the first part, which is really about how we feel about Keir Starmer being people who work for The Guardian and where that fits into a bigger picture of Keir Starmer's relationship with the media. And we talked about their nervousness and fear and how anxious they are about Tory attacks. And those Tory attacks very often come through the right-wing press, right? So... The question of who writes what about Keir Starmer or who says what about Keir Starmer and the Labour Party is very relevant here. Polly, I know you feel yourself, and you have always felt actually, that a part of your job in 
commenting on the Labour Party and its affairs is to provide an alternative perspective to the one that you read in the Sun, the Mail, the Telegraph, the Express and everywhere else, right? I think that's true. I think a lot of Guardian readers never actually see what Labour is up against all the time. That array of 80% of the press, day after day, hammer, 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 a real battery. So they often can't think why Labour's so nervous, because they don't see. The Guardian's the most right-wing thing they ever read. (laughs) And and they don't understand how it fits. Uh, Whereas Labour, you know, people trying to get Labour to win, the people who actually got to do, you know, we sit there commenting from our crow's nest, having a nice time. The heavy lifting has to be done by the people running the Labour Party and its campaign. We Guardian commentators tend to say, well, we're much more moral than Daily Mail journalists, so we always tell the truth as we see it. But I think there comes a certain point where you say, yes, you tell the truth and you're critical when you need to be. But nevertheless, you've got to understand what they're up against and take that into account. I will, I'll give you an answer to that of a sort in a minute, but I wanted to ask Alita first about exactly this question about where the right-wing press sits in the Labour leadership's field of vision, how worried they are about it and how you see that reflected in what they do. I mean, it's only a matter of weeks since we saw very vivid reports about Keir Starmer going to Rupert Murdoch's summer party, for example, right? Mm. So they're very mindful of this. And there's been a lot of chatter amongst journalists, in media insiders, we can call them, on the right who was sort of uh, suggesting that, oh, it seemed as though Murdoch was quite pleased with Starmer and that's, that's probably a good thing and you could hear Labour uh, staff is getting quite excited about the fact that, oh, possibly, you know, we might be able to win this crowd over because ultimately, you know, papers like The Sun and The Daily Mail are read by an incredibly large amount of the British population. We can't forget that. And swing vote. Um, the people who decide elections. Right, quite. Speaking. Um, their, their front pages can't be ignored. And rightly so, they're not, they're definitely not ignored by people within Keir Starmer's closest circle. Now, there are arguments that possibly the Labour leadership is uh, pandering a bit too much to their fear. Also, the danger in what you said is that they over pander. I mean, it must right. worry you a bit, Polly, when you see those reports of him going to, going to Rupert Murdoch's... It's really part. depressing. Blair had to do it too. But that is the nature of what they're up against. I mean, we have an utterly dysfunctional press. They are exceptionally right-wing, unlike sort of Christian Democrats, right-wing newspapers across Europe. In a way, it's astonishing that Labour ever, ever manages to win an election against that. And now we've got GB News and we've got other right-wing stations. You don't think they should worry a bit less in the sense that um, the daily sale of the Mail and the Sun is well down, right? They are now just one part of a wider, me- wider media scape because, well, online, of, because of the internet. Online, so they're on. read a lot. And therefore, you know, you might, perhaps don't have to worry about Rupert Murdoch quite as much as you used to. I think you do, I'm afraid. Uh, I, I don't like seeing Labour shadow ministers on GB News, but they have to do it. You can't really turn around and say you're going to turn your back on parts of the press you don't like. Otherwise, you'd hardly speak to anyone except The Guardian, the FT, uh, the Mirror and the Indy. Uh, And they're all rather small in comparison with this great wall of sound that you get from the right-wing press. To come back to this point about what journalists, uh, broadly speaking, sort of located on the left and who work for The Guardian specifically ought to do, um, I suppose my response to what you said earlier, which is that perhaps we should feel the responsibility to to at least offer an alternative narrative to the ones that the right-wing papers offer and so on. I mean, broadly speaking, 
to defend myself, I would say that I do, because you don't read stuff about poverty and inequality and the actual state of education and all the things that I write about week in, week out in much of the right-wing press. That's one thing. But when it comes to politics and the Labour Party and so on, I'm just I'm a skeptic I'm a skeptic by disposition, which I think a lot of journalists are. And I think even though it's a Labour person in a suit rather than a Tory person in the suit that I might be writing about at any given time, I suppose my responsibility is to sort of try and unpick it and see what's there and what isn't there and what might be the truth and what might not be and all of that. And I do that much more as far as the Conservatives are concerned. I think that's a job that needs doing with the Labour Party too. That is a very important part of it and you're not going to distort what you see, what you find, what people are saying to you. But I think there can sometimes be a danger of a slight preciousness. You know, my conscience is so pure. Uh, I know exactly how politics should be. I know how Labour should be uh, disregarding the obstacles. I mean, politics is a tough, tough business. And for a Labour Party to win, it takes incredible number of different skills and arts, which may sometimes be dark arts. But I think to hold ourselves aloof from that battle... Uh, can be a bit disingenuous. You have to understand what they're up against, and you think some of us forget that sometimes. I think. See, I so. worry that the flip side of that is that is that is that perhaps commentary can get a bit too deferential. To who? To them. Well, you know, Keir Starmer's done all sorts of things that I don't like. I don't like the extent to which they're clamping or, or down or interfering in parliamentary selections. I don't like instinctively what happened with Jamie Driscoll, the mayor in the in the northeast of England. I don't like the way that Andy Burnham, the mayor of Greater Manchester, seems to be briefed against a lot. I can't be forgiven for calling those things out and drawing. No, Peter's that's fine. That's fine. But you just have to keep some balance if you're thinking that what's really going on in this country, the really wicked thing that's happening in this country, is what this government has done for the last thirteen years. How it has destroyed our public services. How it has destroyed a lot of children's futures. The damage that is done that will take. You know, we'd be lucky if in another fourteen years we can get back to where we were in 2010. This is serious, heavy stuff. Uh, Labour manoeuvring and maybe being too strict against anybody who steps out of line and being too obsessed with keeping on message. That's annoying and you can criticise it, but keep it in proportion. I just think one thing uh, his team must bear in mind is, you know, what Conservatives are making of all of those manoeuvres. And it's like those are the people you're trying to woo and the, the Conservatives I speak to. And these are members as well who are again, willing to cast their vote elsewhere, just don't seem like it's very trustworthy. And it's like, why are they pandering to us? Like, why should they be desperate to get on the front page of The Telegraph, for example? Why Why is that? They find that a bit confusing. They'd rather, or in, in the words of somebody I was speaking to yesterday, at least with Jeremy Corbyn, you knew exactly what he stood for. <laughs> yes, obviously it was quite a radical programme, but with Keir Starmer... And they and didn't vote for him. They, the worst <laughs> crash since 1935. Well. <laughs> it's all very well saying you don't want to be on the front page of the Telegraph. But mm. that was a, you know, that was a lesson that they've all learned. It was a painful lesson. Uh, it hurt. And it will hurt much more to lose next time. To lose under Jeremy Corbyn, you can see why. There was Brexit, there was Boris, there was Jeremy Corbyn. This time, you would have a sense of, of the floor simply falling away from your feet. If you can't win, after all that the country's been put through, if Labour can't win now, I think there'll be such a despair. Oh, uh, completely. Let's just end with the question. It seems as if they're going to win the next election, right? 
They're going to win in difficult circumstances. This is not the glad, confident morning of 1997 stuff, right? I would imagine, personally, that, that there will be a little less euphoria just because of the fact that the world we live in is a much more difficult, onerous, troubled place, right? And I wonder, therefore, what you think that moment when Keir Starmer becomes the Prime Minister will feel like and how people will feel. Oh, that night will be <laughs> miraculous. <laughs> just imagine. It'll be like where you up for Portillo. We will see Jacob Rees-Mogg disappear in a puff of smoke. We will see these people who have dominated the news gone and never underestimate the extraordinary change in mood that just happens overnight when you win an election. Suddenly, it really is a new day, a new dawn. All right, there isn't much money. You can't do everything you want to do. But my goodness, you can change the mood. But that also, Alita, that I think, is an interesting moment in another way, that if that happens and at least some optimism is is let loose, that then becomes optimism that will pressure the Labour Party, right? So it's not like Starmer will have it all his own way. The very fact we're not living under this Tory regime that we lived in for 13 years will itself create pressure for change and therefore perhaps we'll get a bit more from the Labour Party than we've seen so far. Absolutely. And I guess it also depends on, you know, how much, you know, the sort of margin they win by. Will he need the help of his left wing that are feeling quite disgruntled at the moment? Will they play some part? Or maybe the Lib Dems. Or the Lib Dems, I know. In which case we get PR and then then politics really changes. There are possibilities that perhaps we haven't thought about thus far that will be catalyzed by the simple fact of a change of government. No, absolutely. And then we've got the sort of horror of, you know, the likes of Suella Braverman, the Kemi Badenox, who were sort of, you know, preparing themselves, sharpening their knives as they prepared to unleash something even worse. <laughs> it's like, you know, I was trying to keep of, us on a, on a hopeful <laughs> sorry, road guys. here. I'm, I'm still feeling <laughs> that sort of terror from but the they uh, will, But they the will be so irrelevant. <laughs> they will be so marginalised. They will be so out of it. They will have lost, I hope, so many seats that it'll take them a long time to recover. They'll go through several impossible and absurd leaders as they did last time. You know, Ian Duncan, Smith, Michael Howard. I mean, goodness me. And, and at the time when he looked ridiculous, William Hague. I mean, they've, they've going to have to go through an awful lot of dross before they recover the other end i'm going to try and round this up on a vaguely optimistic basis i suppose the point is that change is coming and even if we have to wait some change will materialize and it's not often we end on a note of hope so i'm trying my best thank you so much for joining us alita adu and polly toynbee Thank you. Great. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We certainly did. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts. And even better, leave us a review, preferably a nice one. Before you go, I just want to point you in the direction of our sister podcast, Politics Weekly America. Johnny Friedland is speaking to the Reverend Al Sharpton as this month marks 60 years since the March on Washington, which led in part to the passing of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. They are discussing why uh, the Reverend Sharpton believes Martin Luther King's famous I Have a Dream speech has been abused by some on the right, why he's still fighting for police reform, and how the godfather of soul, James Brown, was so influential on his life. Search for Politics Weekly America wherever you get your podcasts. This optimistic episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier and the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. Hope Springs Eternal will be back soon. This is The Guardian. 